This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at entrepreneurship education in Tanzania. You might be asking yourself, hey, didn't Fresh Ed recently discuss entrepreneurship education in Rwanda? You're right, we did. Obviously, the idea of entrepreneurship education is a global phenomenon, or is becoming a global phenomenon, found in many different countries around the world. As such, we need to understand what it is in each local context, who is promoting it, how it is spreading, and what it means for education and society. My guest today is Joan DeJager. She has a new book out called Educating Entrepreneurial Citizens, Neoliberalism and Youth Livelihoods in Tanzania. For Joan, entrepreneurship education cannot be separated from neoliberalism, the contemporary form of capitalism that emerged in the 1970s. And so what I argue in many ways in the book is that this entrepreneurship, as these young people took it up, was creating a citizen that actually could try to make more claims on to Tanzanian society for more social and economic well-being. Um, at the same time, they were actually being um, created in some ways as a sort of neoliberal um, citizen. Her book explores the multiple and contradictory purposes and effects of entrepreneurship education aimed at addressing youth unemployment and alleviating poverty in Tanzania. Joan DeJager is a professor of comparative and international development education in the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development at the University of Minnesota. Joan DeJager, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will, for having me. So you've written a new book um, looking at entrepreneurship education in Tanzania. Um, but before we get into some of the specifics on that case, um, I wanted to just ask about Tanzania in general. I mean, some listeners might not know much about the country. I definitely do not. Uh, I've actually never been to Africa, um, so I'm not really... I don't have too much knowledge on Tanzania. So could you describe what contemporary Tanzania is like just to give us, a, um, to frame the, the conversation we're about to have? Sure. So before I um, comment directly on kind of contemporary Tanzania, I'd like to just preface this talk by saying that really my primary interest in writing this book and even in uh, the study that I undertook in Tanzania was and is not really about the technical issues of entrepreneurship education per se, but really it's about how global education ideas encounter local ideas and practices, particularly related to kind of um, issues and problems of inequality, and in this case, really, um, inequality of education completion and inequality of work opportunities, which I'll talk about, are really relevant in the case of Tanzania. So the book is really written from this perspective of how neoliberal and even liberal ideas and discourses move and are shaped and reshaped in this local context. Um, and in in regard to very specific problems and conditions, I think. So to understand some of those specific problems and conditions, let me just say a little bit about Tanzania today. Um, I think Tanzania is a very interesting place because its government and its governing policies continue to kind of conjoin what we would call kind of capitalist financial and economic policies with also socialist social policies, right? Meaning that they 
often aim to expand development and investment in sectors and industries um, that are really for the purposes of engaging in the global market. And at the same time, it has a sort of very statist approach to development. And I think we're starting to see this again in the new government, um, which means really the state in many ways wants control over how international aid and investment are used to kind of meet the goals and priorities of the state. So, for example, right now in Tanzania, one of the areas that's getting a lot of attention is the expansion of agricultural production and agribusiness. Um, and as much of the population still really relies on agriculture for their livelihood, and I think this is really an attempt to engage in a global agricultural value chain. At the same time, um, government is really attempting, in, in this new government particularly, to ensure that greater good and profit stays in Tanzania by cracking down on things like corruption of these international investments and things. So that's really an example of the government trying to um, invest both in the country, but also control kind of how that aid and investment happens. And on the one hand, trying to um, engage both in economic growth policies and at the same time, um, ensure that uh, it can address poverty alleviation which on the one hand don't necessarily go hand in hand in Tanzania or in many countries actually. So for example, Tanzania has seen actually economic growth over the past decade of about six to seven percent, but the decline in poverty rates is actually less apparent. There's been a decline, but it's really less readily apparent given the kind of economic growth it's have, it's had, which means really that economic wealth is not very equally distributed. And this all has ramifications for this kind of program and study that I did on entrepreneurship that I can talk about later. Um, in addition, there's real, while there's been economic growth and growth in labor markets, more jobs have actually been added in the informal sector than the formal sector. Um, which means that the pay remains low, that it's precarious, that workers in these jobs don't have real benefits. And this has actually real concerns for youth in Tanzania, which is really the object of my study. Um, so youth in Tanzania who are employed, 78% of them work in the informal economy, um, which means that... Um, well, I, and I should say, at the same time, an increasing number of youth are actually attending secondary education, but the kinds of jobs that are, that are available to them are not necessarily related to that educational level. So that's just a bit about kind of the status, I think, of the economy and employment and um, youth education in Tanzania. So what, what sort of jobs are, are, are included in the informal economy? So things like agricultural production, um, when it's not for an agribusiness or for a formal business. So informal economy refers to any kind of small um, household business that might not be formally uh, registered or regulated by by the government, right? So a lot of uh, Tanzanians are well known for having many, many household kinds of businesses, and that might include selling things as as um, like clothes on the street or even clothes in my town or village to to um, engaging in agricultural production and then selling it in my local market. Um, it also means things like uh, young men and women who might be working um, in construction or other sectors, but they're doing it as um, contract laborers and not necessarily as formally employed with um, a waged salary or, or with any kind of benefits. So there's, there's both, um, in the informal economy, there's both the informal sector and there's the informal work that's done in the formal sector. 
And the informal work, as ILO talks about it, the International Labor Organization, is really those kinds of jobs that are short-term, low-wage, that are not protected, but they're still in the formal economy. So you might still be working for a formal business, but a formally registered business, but you have an informal job. And so what what about education then? How, like, how do you see this confluence of market capitalism, the embrace of market capitalism with the legacies of, of the socialist past in a say. How is education trying to balance these two different poles? Well, that's, that's interesting because I think um, Tanzania has a kind of Janus-faced relationship with both um, this market economy and the socialist kind of ancestry or history. And also that comes out in, in schooling. Um, so while the majority of um, students actually attend government schools, for example, still only 34% of the population actually goes on to secondary education. Um, and while that has increased since the colonial past, and it's increased even since Nereri's time, um, that's still really quite low in terms of participation. And that's only participation. That's not actually those who are passing secondary education. So the real dilemma is that, um, and even sh- the passing rates of those who are participating in secondary education is actually declining because the tests each year kind of change and get harder. And if you don't pass secondary education, you can't actually enter the formal labor market because one of the requirements often is that you hold a certificate in secondary education. Wow. Okay. So 34% go on to secondary school. I mean, that that's incredibly low. Mm-hmm. And yet that's higher than what it had been, right? Right. And I mean, it, it's interesting. Tanzania, it has the colonial past, it has the socialist past, and now it has the kind of capitalist present. Um, and obviously, they're, they're mixing and matching in, in interesting ways. I just, before we jump into this entrepreneurship education um, and looking at it more specifically, I just want to get a sense of what is what are our development partners like the World Bank and the Asian, or not the Asian Development Bank, but... Um, uh, the UN and NGOs, are, do they play a big role mm-hmm. uh, in the education sector? Yes, and um, and I guess yes, <laughs> uh, both historically and today. Um, but as I was saying, this kind of Janus-based relationship. So let me just say a little bit more about maybe the, the kind of decolonization period and um, the, of, of Nereri's time, right? So Nereri actually had this kind of policy of Ujamaa, very famously known for his Ujamaa policy, which was really about um, self-reliance, meaning that the, the government and the people of Tanzania were going to take care for their own development, and they were not going to rely on external aid as they had to do under the colonial past, or that the colonial past had actually kind of... Um, disenabled them to um, to actually pursue their own trajectory, right, both in education and development. Um, but what the, the irony of that time period in Nereri's decolonization period was that the secondary education system and the vocational education system were actually supported by the World Bank and other forms of international aid. So he very, primary education was not. The government supported primary education. But secondary and vocational were highly supported by World Bank, even though Nereri very much criticized 
the World Bank, right? Um, and then when the economy plummeted in the 1980s, both in Tanzania, but actually across many countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and the, the country transitioned away from its social economy, socialist economy, Tanzania actually engaged even more with those international donors, right? And what is kind of well known as, as engaging in the structural adjustment programs and what my colleagues like Joel Samoff have said really in some ways succumbing to this kind of neoliberal policies that in many ways were very detrimental to education at the time because it required families and children to pay for um, attendance in secondary education. It was only this past year in the 2016 new education policy in Tanzania that they have now promised to, to provide free and compulsory secondary education. Now, of course, free should be always in quotes um, because there are always additional uh, fees, even fees for the exam to, to take the exam and pass the exam. Um, so that gives, uh, does that answer the question a little bit about the history? It, and the It does. I mean, it makes, I mean, my advisor in, when I did my PhD, Mark Bray, he always used to say, someone has to pay for education. Education is never free. Right. Right. I mean, so free is in quotes makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, I mean, this, the 1980s, obviously, where the structural adjustment programs from the World Bank came in and kind of the, the beginning of neoliberalism in many countries, like you said, is, is this when we see the, the rise of entrepreneurship education or is this kind of a later phenomenon, kind of more 21st century? That's an interesting question because um, entrepreneurship as a practice, right, and as a discourse actually has a long history in Tanzania, even prior to the 80s. But what you did see in the 1980s, and other people have written about this, is that there was a sudden rise for people to um, start a secondary business or a household enterprise during the 80s, in part because they were not getting their full wages, and they therefore couldn't actually live off of their formal employment. Prior to the 80s, Nereri actually had outlawed a second form of work because he wanted to ensure that people were completely committed to their own primary form of, if they were on the government payroll, they were to be on the government payroll. Um, so you see entrepreneurship as a practice, but you don't actually see entrepreneurship education. Um, and formal entrepreneurship education is just now actually being integrated into policy and practice. And um, it was in 2013 that the government actually created this national entrepreneurship training framework working with the ILO, so the International Labor Organization. So you were asking if international donors are present. ILO has a very present uh, um, uh, influence on the country in this regard. And so they've come up with these kind of outcomes and suggestions for curriculum at all levels from pre-primary through tertiary education. Now, that's not actually implemented yet. And unlike some countries like Rwanda and Mozambique, where entrepreneurship is, is required throughout the curriculum, it's not yet required in all aspects of Tanzanian curriculum. Um, so, and it's actually just this year that I found out it's now required as an elective in formal secondary education schools for those who pursue the business and commerce study route. So there are different routes, right, for science or arts and business and commerce is one. And, and entrepreneurship is now an elective course that they must, that they can, they can take related to that area in secondary school. 
and it is also required in some areas of higher education and vocational programs. So entrepreneurship is part of the curriculum. The term, I want to say a little bit about the term because we found this interesting in our study. Um, When you look at the curriculum documents, they use the term Ujasiriya Mali, which is actually a more recent Swahili term to kind of be invented to try and um, encompass this notion of entrepreneurship. In part, it seems to distinguish it from what I said was very common practice in people's lives, right? So people have all these household enterprises. Those are known as biashara midogo midogo, right? A small business or a household business. But entrepreneurship is seen as something different. And so they use this new word to talk about it. Um, and I, I should say to listeners as well as readers of the book that really the, the book is not about necessarily a formal policy, as I said, because it's not really com- holistically um, included in formal policy yet in Tanzania and curriculum, but it really is about how entrepreneurship becomes um, is developed as a mindset and a ser- sort of set of skills and practices that particularly NGOs and non-formal programs bring into, say, vocational or even extracurricular um, formal school settings. So can you give us an example of that? How is entrepreneurship a mindset or skills and practices that NGOs have brought into the the landscape of Tanzania? Well, that's interesting because in my view, as I look at entrepreneurship curriculum and and the research on this, um, you know, to be honest, many of the skills and mindset are very, very common across countries in the curricula. And again, partially maybe because the ILO, um, and this goes to that kind of global influence, right, has influenced so much of the, of the, the thinking around that. So things like um, identifying value chains. So we're talking about capitalist global value chains here, although sometimes it's also about local value chains. You know, teaching skills around marketing products, um, creating types of products that will actually secure a new market or get higher prices. These were all skills that these young people that were part of these NGO programs that we uh, studied all learned. But then they also taught them things like a mindset around resilience, right? So if you fail at this the first time, you better try again, right? Um, persistence, right? Persistence not only with customers, but persistence with just this kind of work that you uh, need to do in order to survive in many ways. And I think the mindset also, and this is one that I discuss at length in the book, around taking responsibility for your own welfare, right? Um, no one's going to employ you because employment rate is, even though there are jobs that are be, you know, being added, they're usually not for these kind of uh, either secondary school leavers or, or secondary school completers even. And therefore, if you're not going to be employed, well, you, be, you have to take responsibility for your own self-employment. So those are the kind of, um, I would say, skills and, and mindset. What some people have called and what I call in the book is kind of really promoting this notion of the homo economicus, right? A person who's completely oriented toward seeking and creating their own livelihoods primarily for the purpose of profit, um, and most of these curricula focused on, you know, how to make a profit, teaching young people how to understand the financial, financial, basic financial literacy, and then eventually financial accounts of businesses, et cetera. Um, but it goes beyond just, you know, creating your own livelihood and making a profit to actually taking care of your own livelihoods because there aren't other social supports there to ensure that you can get out of poverty. So, I mean, it seems like the role of the state is pretty much absent in this sort of mindset? Um, yes. Yes. 
And then, and even for many of these youth, right? So, um, I can say more about this later, but, you know, one of the programs targeted youth who were already out of school. So, even the opportunity to get an education, the role of the state is missing there. Um, the other program was um, an NGO program that targeted NGO, primarily NGO-run schools. Um, and so, again, the state is, while there are definitely NGO secondary schools, there really still aren't sufficient for the demand. So the state is in some ways absent from that as well, even though the state still requires a national curriculum, right? So... Um, so then the state isn't even ensuring their ability to actually secure an education, much less to use an education for a job. And and it makes me wonder, I mean, you oftentimes we think of public education not only about giving the skills necessary for people to work in labor markets, but also this notion of social cohesion or citizenship, mm-hmm. that somehow going to public schools binds people together and that the, the we have stake we have a stake in the public system, not simply for our own individual good, but for our collective good. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder what sort, what happens to the Tanzanian citizen in this sense? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, um, because I think the book really takes up this question um, around whether the neoliberal kind of mentality and discourse, which is, I argue, so dominant in these programs and in entrepreneurship education curricula, and whether or not um, that fundamentally um, is is creating a sort of neoliberal, as I said, this homo economis, economic citizen, right? Um, and I don't really um, say so much that there's a unique Tanzanian citizen that's emerging, because I think that that's to be seen. But I do think there's a unique form of citizenship that's emerging in these programs. But I have to say, and this was a surprise to me, both because this was a five-year research project and through much of the analysis, um, spending a lot of time with the, with the data and the analysis, um, that I don't, I don't think it created just the purely neoliberal economic citizen. That what I show in this book is really what I call the double features or the doubleness of neoliberalism as it meets this kind of socialist, um, and, and not the pure socialism of Nereri's time, but a socialist kind of remnant that remains in the community for many of these young people. Um, where they, so maybe if I can give an example of this and this kind of may jump ahead to some other questions, but, um, so, you know, on the one hand, these youth are to create their own enterprises. That's the primary goal, right? For especially these youth who are out of school and they're in a non-formal program. Um, and they, um, are to create the enterprise and hopefully they will be making a profit from that enterprise. And from that profit, ideally you would reinvest a little bit more so that you could expand or, or make a larger enterprise. I mean, that's the logic, right? Of entrepreneurship is profit expansion, um, potentially hiring other people. So that creates some form of economic growth. We know from a lot of literature, actually, that a lot of these kind of programs, particularly targeted at marginalized youth and, and women, et cetera, don't end up actually 
producing a lot of profit, nor do they end up actually producing a lot of new enterprises or new jobs. But these young people, for those who did make uh, make whatever little bit amount of money that they could from these enterprises, would then turn it around and reinvest it in their own family and in their own, so their own siblings' education or their own family's health care. Some of them would reinvest it by trying to hire their friend because they knew their friend had no opportunity for work. So on the one hand, yes, there was a job created, but it's not really a job in any formal market. It's not being counted in the statistics, but it was to help another person get by. And so what I argue in many ways in the book is that this entrepreneurship, as these young people took it up, was creating... Um, a citizen that actually could try to make more claims on to Tanzanian society for more social and economic well-being. Um, at the same time, they were actually being um, created in some ways as a sort of neoliberal um, citizen. And I can say more about that at another point. So that's the that's the doubleness that you Yes, about. yeah. And I that's really um, one of the key terms that I... Um, there's a couple of, if I could say a little more about, there's a couple of people and ideas that really influence this book around thinking around neoliberalism as it, as this global idea and as it meets the local and how to try and think about that given this example that I was just talked about, how do these youth actually practice in their lives? And one of them actually is, um, James Ferguson's work on neoliberalism in Sub-Saharan Africa, where he talks about that there really are many forms of neoliberalism. And so in the book, I use the plural neoliberalisms to try and understand what forms this takes in Tanzania and in these specific communities, right? Because I'm not talking about all of Tanzania and I'm not talking about just Tanzanian government policy. Um, I'm talking about in these communities for these youth. Um, and another book that really kind of informed my thinking was one called The Moral Neoliberal by Andrea Mullenbach. Mullenbach. And she um, talks about this double nature of neoliberalism that, on the one hand, is this sort of receding state, right, that doesn't support citizens. But in, in place, it creates these other kinds of apparatuses for, the, for citizens themselves to provide for the social support and care of the citizens. Um, and then the third kind of idea I think that I really examine and, or use in this book to examine neoliberalism is Anna Singh's notion of friction um, around globalization and friction. And really that's about how global ideas, it's not just that global ideas are, are um, borrowed and taken up. I think that they're actually uh, reshaped. And she talks about it as friction, meaning they encounter local practices. And in that friction, some things are lost and some things new come out of it. And I think one of the challenges in this book was for me to try and understand what was the new piece that was coming out? And was it necessarily a more positive or more negative kind of orientation to this neoliberal entrepreneurial citizen? And it was both, in a sense, the finding... And it was both. There, there are yes. some positives and there are some negatives in, in this new form of citizenship that you, this unique Tanzanian citizenship, maybe not citizen, but citizenship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is this doubleness in, in neoliberalism and, and how it, it operates through the school system and how these kind of global partners um, might help transfer certain ideas, but then they get um, localized or indigenized. Mm -hmm. um, and I just want to know, are you skeptical of issues like, you know, when, when you see entrepreneurship education and you say that the, the policies 
um, are, are kind of still emerging uh, in Tanzania. They, they've kind of, the language might be there, but there's no real policy documents. They're just beginning to articulate them inside policy documents on how entrepreneurship education will actually look in practice uh, or supposedly look in practice from the policy document side. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm just wondering, are you, are you skeptical that this is, you know, the, the intention of the policymakers who probably are being advised by development partners? Mm -hmm. um, are you skeptical that they will be able to achieve the intended outcomes that they have? Yes, I am. And I was skeptical from the beginning. Um, I was, and as I start the book, I, I state how I was in many ways really worried about the future of these youth because I was worried it was going to create, um, this sort of singular economic person who actually had met a dead end, meaning that they were trained in a certain way to be an entrepreneur, but they had very little opportunity to develop an enterprise that was actually going to flourish and support them, right? Um, so I was very concerned about that from the beginning. And I think um, the purpose in writing this book, back to your larger question, I think, was um, to actually reflect on how development organizations um, and even very specifically the foundation that funded this work, right, need to think about the purposes of these kinds of programs and therefore what not only the purpose, but then therefore what do they need to do to address some of the, the um, constraints that these young people face in order to actually have better well-being and not just start an enterprise. So, so th usually these programs are very limited to just trying to say, okay, we're going to make sure that people are employed. So the, the NGOs that were implementing these were like, we want to have 100% uh, employment of all the youth who go through this program, right? Now that could have meant starting their own enterprise or working with an apprentice or maybe even working in the formal economy, right? Um, and I think, as we said at the end of this project to many of them in a, in a meeting, we said, I think this project made them and all of us much more humble, right? To recognize, first of all, that that isn't necessarily the most achievable end. It's not to say that young people didn't start enterprises, and it's not to say that some didn't make money. But I think that that's the, um, the, no, the wrong purpose. Or maybe the, um, for, for, for this problem of saying that you're going to solve unemployment through entrepreneurship, right? Um, because so many of these young people are not employed because they are excluded in society in so many other ways. And that's why I bring together this kind of concept of citizenship as well in this book, right? Is that the larger issue is that they're excluded from society. They're excluded because they haven't been educated to the extent that they need to be, to be in the formal education. They're excluded because even if they start a household enterprise, they often don't have enough uh, community recognition um, because of who they're seen as youth to be able to, to get the kind of um, customers, et cetera, that they need. So um, my the purpose really was then to try and say to these kind of donors and things, well, so what do you aim to achieve and how can you measure that better? And how can you then plan in your implementation to achieve that better? And my primary, uh, I guess, one of my primary arguments is that the good that comes came out of this program was that it actually did achieve greater inclusion of these youth. But if it does achieve greater inclusion in their communities, et cetera, then um, we need to be able to be attentive to that by trying to address some of these barriers of exclusion um, that are exclusion in the labor market, that are exclusion in the education sector. Yeah, it's like the, the unemployment, you know, it's 
it's really a symptom of a larger issue, a larger problem. And very much so. And it's and by focusing on entrepreneurship education as a way to solve the unemployment, there might be some truth in that, but it's not. A, people will still be excluded in other ways, even if they have some certain informal jobs. Right. So, for example, one of the things that came out of this project from year one, and we shared it with the NGOs repeatedly, was how um, gender discrimination really kept a lot of these women out of both formal employment and even self-employment when they had customers, they faced so much discrimination or harassment, right? And so drawing attention to those kind of factors of exclusion and discrimination are really important, but those were not on the radar of the funder. They were not on the radar of the NGOs when we started this project. Um, but they are other forms of exclusion that very much affected whether or not these young women would be able to achieve what they wanted them to achieve, which is to be employed and earn money. Yeah. So I was going to say, in fact, in one of the countries, not the not Tanzania, although well, it did happen in Tanzania, but it's not the program that we talk, I talk about in the book. But the project also took place in Kenya, and we saw many of the young women, um, while they were trained in these kind of this this entrepreneurship and much more broadly livelihoods program, a ho- more holistic program, they would get these kind of technical skills and other life skills, et cetera. And then they would go out to the formal labor market, start working, be confronted with this discrimination, and many of them actually then would pull themselves out of those jobs and return to education as a pathway, an alternative pathway to both avoid the discrimination and the exclusion they were facing and a hope that they were going to continue to get more certification, more skills to be able to eventually get better paying, more stable jobs. Do you think that the neoliberal discourse... Um, that is obviously very apparent in this entrepreneurship education. Do you think it blinds people to um, to other issues like you know gender discrimination that you were talking about? Yeah, I, yes, I do because I think donors and funders and even the NGOs are so oriented toward the economic outcomes, and and a lot of the evaluations of these programs also are right. And so the framework um, that we really used in this project was one of and I explained briefly in the book around a capability approach, but really trying to look at the larger well-being that these this kind of work was was achieving for these young people. So it isn't just about um, about whether or not they had a job because they might have had a job and three months later they didn't, right? Um, or they had a job but they weren't getting paid t- on a timely basis. So their well-being and their actual sustainability of that work did little for them in getting them out of poverty or so helping to sustain their family. Um, so even though I talked earlier about how these youth often tr- used that money for more positive means, for but like being included in society and, and achieving kind of social good for other people, um, the programs themselves were not as oriented toward that social good. But the doubleness of this program, in many ways, was that the youth then reinterpreted it to try to, to address more of their social good. We oriented our analysis in that way, but they actually led us to that because they kept saying, "Well, we're not making much money, but what money we're making, we can use to make sure that my younger sibling is educated or what have you." So we were able. Able to then look at a much broader sense of what we would call why, um, well-being and sustainable livelihoods than much of the literature, I think, does. Well, Joan DeJager, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure to talk today. Thank you, Will. Joan DeJager is a professor of comparative and international development education in the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development 
at the University of Minnesota. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.